This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, everyone. Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith. This is the radio show where we help you to understand the evidences that support the truth of Christianity. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And I'm Jinsu Kim. And we're going to be talking about the debate that happened on Friday between William Lane Craig and Professor Alex Rosenberg. But we've got a lot of News items to do first, and a myth of the week that we're going to do with Kirk. But uh, just let me remind you that we are the official voice of Ratio Christi, so please check out the webpage, ratiochristi.org. That's R-A-T-I-O-C-H-R-I-S-T-I. I saw somebody spell it with a Y once, so it's S-T-I dot org. And also check out our website, Evidence for Faith, Evidence the Number Four, Faith.com, where you will find archived radio shows that go back almost two years, although there are more than that, but we had to got so many we had to start taking them off. One of the emails we got was complaining that they couldn't find some of the shows from two thousand and eight. So sorry about that, folks. Only a limited amount of size of memory on the internet. And if you want to find podcasts, you can look at iTunes. And for Android users, you can go to Double Twist to get our podcasts. So, Kirk, uh, we have got some great news items. And although I do want to, we've only had Jinsu on once before. So, uh, Jinsu, why don't you introduce yourself again to the audience and tell us who you are. All right, my name is Jin Su. I am a student, a senior at Richard Stockton College. Uh, I suppose that I am representing them as of right now. Absolutely. Um, I plan on going to seminary school. Um, I do have uh, my choices laid out. We'll see how that goes. And I do want to become a chaplain. And apologetics is one of my greatest passions. So. And you did your certification course through Biola, so you've... Had listened to a lot of lectures on Yes, a lot apologetics. of lectures. Like I said last time, I am still actually finishing out the tests right now, but my certificate should be coming in soon. So, Great. thanks, Viola. I don't know. There you go. There you go. Very good. Well, let's see. The first item on the list here is from Creation Ministries International, and it's about radiocarbon in dinosaur bones. Now, at first blush, people will think, well, that's funny. I didn't know you could radiocarbon dinosaur bones. And, of course, nobody's ever actually tried to do it because dinosaur bones aren't actually still bones. They're fossils. They're made out of stone. They're silicon so and other minerals. They're not calcium anymore. There's no carbon. So there's no reason to carbon date them until the amazing finds of soft tissues in dinosaur bones since the last couple of years, including, I think the very first one was a Tyrannosaurus rex thigh bone that was being pulled out of Montana from some sediment in Montana from 
70 million years ago, and it was too heavy and too big to get on the helicopter, so they broke it in half, and out came blood clots. So these were taken back to the lab and investigated. They found hemoglobin. They found red blood cells, capillaries, lots of soft tissue, all the signs that of, of fresh Tyrannosaurus rex bone. Wow, when is the new? Uh, when is the real Jurassic Park going to open? Yeah, exactly. You could use that <laughs> and DNA it, right? Yeah. yeah. So since then, now this has all been done by secular scientists. So and they, you know, did a lot to try to disprove their finds. They didn't want to accept it. But since then, other scientists have begun looking for soft tissue in fossils and have been finding a lot of it. So they found. Squid ink, the actual ink still in existence. They found skin cells, actual skin. Let's see, what else did they find? Oh, I know. The shells of insects. So the carbon in the shells of the insects survives quite well. So So this is a real puzzle for the evolutionist and the old age creationist, too. Okay, you're saying that they can't carbon date dinosaur bones. So for no, the benefit of our... No, they can't. I said they didn't because their theory was that you can't. Well, that they're not actual bones. They're just rock uh, reproductions yeah, that, of the original bones, right? There's no, there's no carbon. There's no carbon there to carbon date. Right. So how have they been determining how old dinosaur bones are up to now? based on the the strata in which the bone is found. Okay, that's what I thought. So the, uh, well, and actually, and, and how do they find out what age the strata is? They find out that out by what fossils are there. So they have, so they use <laughs> what are called index fossils, such as clams, because there are, clams proceed through the entire uh, strata in just about all geological systems, you can find clams. So they use clams as a big index fossil. So they use clams to date the strata, and then they, and based on just the theory of evolution, how how old the the clams and how they've changed over time, according to the theory. You know, you can't date sedimentary strata either because the sediments have all been washed in. So there's no possible way of knowing how much daughter elements were washed in with the parent elements. So no one ever tries to use, you know, like um, uranium lead or other types of dating methods on strata. The only thing you can use it on is things like lava flows. So occasionally if there's a lava flow at a place, they will try to use that to date it. But it's really done just by the theory of evolution at what age which dinosaurs were, and then they try to correlate it with other finds. And so so it's really not based on any hard science. It's just based on the theory of evolution. But, of course, that's their hard science. They, you know, to them it's not a theory. It's a, it's actual fact. Wasn't well, that kind of circular reasoning? If they're using the strata to determine the age of the bones and they're determining the age of the bones based on the strata? Yeah, they, and the, they're determining the age of the strata based on other fossils. Yeah, that's exactly right. There have been long complaints about this by from creationists, but you know the only thing they'll say is that, well, we have also lava flows. But, of course, if you go and measure the, the date of the lava flows at, say, Mount St. Helens, you know, which blew up in, what, 1981, something like that, 
Yeah, the mid '80s. Yeah, it was in the early early 1980s, and those lava flows date to millions of years in the past. So, so the traditional dating methods are, are fairly flawed. Carbon, the carbon 14 dating method is, is something that's used on organic material. Obviously, you know that's basically the same thing as saying it's got carbon. Although there are some carbon sources that are not organic, but here's what the article says. A team of researchers gave a presentation in, at the 2012 Western Pacific Geophysics Meeting in Singapore, August 13th through 17th, at which they gave carbon-14 dating results for many bone samples from eight dinosaur specimens. All gave So this was multiple samples from each of the specimens. They were also all different levels, different types of dinosaurs. They just had to have enough um, bone cells to be able to get the carbon for dating. All gave date ranges from 22,000 to 39,000 years, right in the ballpark predicted by creationists. But if dinosaurs really were millions of years old, there should not be one atom of carbon-14 left in them. This was a joint event of the American Geophysical Union and the Asia-Oceanic Geosciences Society. It appears that the researchers approached the matter with considerable professionalism, including taking great pains to eliminate contamination with modern carbon, as a source of the carbon-14 signal in the bones. The lead presenter was Dr. Thomas Seiler, a German physicist whose Ph.D. is from the Technical University of Munich. There's a video presentation on YouTube at the time of writing of this report. And the reason they say that, this is uh, the report from Creation Ministries International, is because the abstract was removed from the conference website by two chairmen because they could not accept the findings. They were unwilling to challenge the data openly. They erased the report from public view without a word to the authors or even to the AOGS officers. They say, indeed, one can go online to see a screenshot of the original program, but going to the official conference site, the talk has clearly been removed. Go to Wednesday Room Leo 2, double-click on BGO2, which is the session that had the presentation, and the numbers go from 4 to 6 omitting presentation number five, which was the one with the carbon-14 and the dinoborms. So much for science's alleged openness to the data, the power of the paradigm can be clearly seen. So the guys will, you know, this presenting before society is one way of preparing a talk, a paper, before it goes to publication. So you'll get feedback from the scientists that are there, Questions and you may decide to adapt your paper a little bit, and then you'll present it for peer review. So you can see that there's no possible chance that they will get peer review publication because the paper will simply not be accepted for publication. Wow. So, yeah. So, it's, but it's very good. They did. They did in a, a report that they sent out. They challenged other scientists to be to do their own studies and date their own dinosaur bones just to confirm it. So, But it, it just goes to another point we like to make on the radio show, how evolution is a science stopper. Because of evolution, they simply will not investigate anything that might disagree with evolution, and anybody who does gets shouted down or shut up or silenced. Hmm. Um, is there some place on the Internet we can go to get more information on this story? Yeah, if you go, the YouTube presentation is great because you see the scientist presenting his data and you see his slides and he goes over 
all the different methods they use to prevent contamination. Of course, with the newer methods, the laser spectrography and techniques, there is virtually no contamination. So, but he still gave many different arguments. You know, for instance, they use different sample sizes. So if the samples are being contaminated, then you'd be able to detect the difference between a small sample and a large sample. You just detect the difference in the ratio. And so there, there was no difference. And the other thing he pointed out, I think, was that if there's contamination, then you get a signal that is an intermediary between the actual age and the modern age. And again, they didn't see that happening. So that's kind of like when they misdated the Shroud of Turin. They had dated stuff that had actual modern dates on it instead of, you know, that that was true contamination. In fact, the part they thought they were cleaning out was actually the older fibers from the original material. So, hmm. but anyway, so that's, a, you know, it's a big breakthrough. Prior to this, they'd been saying that the, you know, it was just that, we didn't think that carbon could last this long. We didn't think that red blood cells could last this long. We didn't think that DNA could last this long. But, oh, well, I guess they do. I guess I guess DNA, even though it has a half-life of, like, 500 years, and theoretically it would be impossible to detect any DNA beyond 10,000 years, all of a sudden, oh, I guess we were wrong. All those, all those scientific studies beforehand were wrong. Magically, it can last for 65 million years, even though it's not, you know, like frozen at minus Kelvin or, uh, you know, at uh, zero Kelvin. That's like that uh, that analogy with the nurse that you guys had on your radio show before. Oh, yeah. With a finger? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly yes. that. Yeah, the, uh, the guy who thinks that he's dead. So, and you prove that to him that he, you know, he can bleed and, oh, I guess dead people do bleed after all. <laughs> so there's an interesting... A seminar coming up in Philadelphia for our local listeners, if they're interested in attending. It's going to be the Science and Faith Seminar, Westminster Conference, and it's put on by Westminster Theological Seminary. So this year it's going to be at Covenant Fellowship Church. It's a great seminar. I try to go every year. I was going to say, hey, local listeners, if you're interested in meeting me or Kirk or Jinsu or whoever goes to it, then... You know, just email us in and we'll get together when we're out there in Philadelphia. But I just checked before the radio show. This conflicts with the EPS meeting, Evangelical Philosophical Society meeting, and I already asked to present a paper there. So it's on the 6th. So if they accept my paper, I'll probably go and present instead of going to listen to somebody else's papers. However, the listeners can still come and meet up with any That's true. Other That's right. Like Jin Su uh, yeah. or Kurt. And what's the date of that? Uh, April 6th. So it's a Saturday. It's all day. It's great. Discovery Institute puts it on. It's fabulous. And, oh, I didn't mention the speakers. Oh, my goodness. The speakers, <laughs> Dr. Stephen Meyer, who we had as a guest on the radio show, the author of uh, Signature in the Cell, which is a fabulous, fabulous book if you want to learn about intelligent design. And also Dr. John Lennox, who is a brilliant Oxford mathematician, really, really smart guy. This guy doesn't have to talk for more than about 10 minutes before you start thinking, I don't think I've ever heard anybody this intelligent speak before. <laughs> so he's really, really terrific to listen to. I don't know. He, he might, uh, I, I, we might have just listened to a debate where there's a guy. Oh, yeah. I well, rival his intelligence. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, William Lane Craig is right up there, along yeah. with J.P. Moreland. So they're all in the same uh, 
you know, same category as far as I can tell. <laughs> uh, then the one other thing that I wanted to mention was the Cornwall Alliance, which is a terrific Christian environmental organization, tries, tries to correct a lot of the environmental inaccuracies of the secular left, did a little essay on the movie The Promised Land. Jinsu, did you see The Promised Land? Nope. So this was a recent movie. It was a flop in the box office, but it starred Matt Damon. And so it's one of those things that, you know, it'll go into DVD, and then teachers in elementary school and, or, well, probably not elementary, but junior high and high school will be showing this for decades, just like they show Inherit the Wind. Did you see Inherit the I Wind? I have not seen it. You have not? Okay. No. Maybe they're finally not showing it anymore since it was a 1960s movie. I know for a fact that it, you know people were telling me they saw it in school being showed as a as if it were a documentary when it's really just a badly done movie at least as badly done in the sense of inaccurate. Um, in fact, they didn't even have the it's it's a documentary of the Scopes trial. They didn't even have the names of the characters the same because they knew it was really not about the Scopes trial. So. Uh, so all the characters have different names, and all the facts are all totally different, and it's just a propaganda piece to ridicule Christianity, but um, that's good enough for most of the teachers that show it. I know I saw it a couple of times in public school, and I know plenty of kids who, who've seen it since. Yeah, I have an entire section in my book about all the historical inaccuracies in that movie. Yep, and uh, they've it's since been redone in... Uh, in a very great way, they instead of just making a documentary and just showing the kind of dry, very dryly what actually happened, what they did is they, they made a new movie called Alleged. Did you see that, Kurt? No. So that was another story-based movie, but in this case, everything is accurate. So, so everything that is said in the courtroom was actually said from the transcripts. The names are the same because they you know didn't have to change them. But they were able to bring in a lot of other nuanced things that were going on at the time. Because remember, this was, what, uh, 1929, I think, when the Scopes trial took place. It was right before World War II. It was right, it was right during the heat of the eugenics movement. And that is one of the reasons why the Kentucky legislator, legislatures tried to ban the teaching of human evolution. See, that's another thing they, they mistake. They didn't try to ban evolution the teaching of evolution, they tried to ban the teaching of human evolution because in the United States, they were starting to sterilize people against their will because they believed that they were animals developed from monkeys. And so human evolution was showing that you could breed people and Harvard and Princeton and all the major universities were pushing eugenics and about 60,000 people were sterilized against their will in the United States between the early 1920s and 1960. I think the last forced sterilization was in 1960. Implication wow. of ideas. Yep, yep. Bad ideas have bad consequences, and evolution is a very bad idea. And that was the basis of uh, Hitler's concept of the master race also, that you could you know, take the quote-unquote better human beings and uh, make more copies of them, and you'd come up with a better human race. Yep, yep. The little short guy, Hitler, that was kind of skinny and not even totally Aryan, and had some <laughs> blood in his background. Yep, he was all for breeding people. 
If you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. Jen Sukan. And we're going to be talking about a debate between William Lane Craig and Professor Alex Rosenberg. But before we do that, we have dun, da, 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 the Myth Buster Myth of the Week. Yeah, we have to get a little musical theme for that. I'm telling you. <laughs> Okay, I better try to do this quickly so we have some time left for our subject. Uh, this week's myth is Christianity is incompatible with science. Of course, that's something that we've dealt with quite a number of times on this program, but um, I have a little different uh, outlook on it here. So uh, to basically give you an overview of what I'm talking about here, let me say that science, by definition today, has no way to examine Christian beliefs or God's reality because it properly limits itself to study of the physical world only. True science and true Christianity examine evidence in different ways, but their findings are ultimately compatible. Now, as Soupy Sales used to say, what do I mean by that? <laughs> a good idea. Okay. The Latin word scientia refers to all knowledge, used to refer to all knowledge, not just, you know, uh, knowledge of the physical universe. That included, like, theological knowledge was considered a science. Interestingly enough, I'm sure a lot of people don't realize that. Science today defines itself as limited to knowledge of the physical, and while this definition is somewhat reasonable, it does not mean that something outside the physical cannot exist. Because science is supposed to be based on evidence, and there's no evidence that every phenomenon is physical. Now, here's some interesting stats I have here. Forty percent of professional scientists are practicing Christians, and there are many others who are theists of other kinds. Fewer than 30 percent are atheists. In universities, more Christians are found in the natural sciences than in any other fields. Imagine that. In Christianity, God creates a rational universe and rational minds capable of understanding it. So many, But many scientists practice a closeted faith uh, because groupthink, the idea of groupthink, causes significant underreporting of religious belief for fear of negative sanctions by secular colleagues. Many scientists' attitudes toward religion, therefore, are more the result of politics and peer pressure than of actual science. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Yep. Now, this is interesting, too. In the, uh, the research that I looked up, it says, the findings of science today actually now indicate that the existence of God is more likely than not. The scientific enterprise itself is validated by his existence. If there were, think about this. If there were no cosmic order and regularity, there could be no science. The laws of nature are neither simple, nor necessary, nor self-evident, nor adequately explained, even today. But imagine the impossibility of proceeding with scientific inquiry if nothing behaved in an orderly, regular way. Right. People often forget that natural law is a human construct that humans have derived from observing the orderliness of nature. It is still completely unknown why these laws are, or what they are, or whether they may ever change or not. Now, Isaac Newton uh, observed that the laws of nature are not laws of logic, nor are they like the laws of logic. However, anti-theists insist on the absolute incompatibility of science with Christianity. 
but they don't think about the fact that sustained scientific development originated in Christian Europe. The Christian view is that God created the world rationally, mathematically, and regularly, and he creates humans with the ability to understand and appreciate it. Science first arose in Christian culture, believe it or not. Right. Now, Copernicus, who lived from 1473 to 1543, was a devoted Catholic clergyman. Galileo, who lived from 1564 to 1642, was also a practicing Catholic. And I could give you a number of examples. I could go on for a half an hour of a lot of the early scientists that were practicing Catholics or Christians or whatever. Well, virtually every founding father of a field in science was a Christian scientist. That's right. Well, not the Christian science religion. We mean scientists that are Christians. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Okay, yeah, the historians of science increasingly find that the origins of science are in Christianity. The growth of science from the 1600s onward is one of the greatest phenomena in the history of human existence, and it came out of Christianity. The word scientist was not even coined until 1834. But true scientists and true Christians both prefer to pursue truth wherever it may be found. Now, here's another interesting little tidbit. William of Ockham, uh, who lived from 1285 to 1347, who was known for Ockham's razor. You hear that being brought up by atheists a lot? Yeah. Okay, what Ockham's razor is, is... um, to define it, it would be the best explanation is the simplest one compatible with the evidence. Right. Now, he also said that although God's power is absolute, now he was a Christian, that although God's power is absolute, God chooses to create a consistent system in which he rarely has to intervene. This presence enables, this premise enables Christians to believe in a cosmos constructed along rationally coherent observable principles without denying the idea that God has the power to change anything if he wanted to. So we can conclude with saying that the curious fact that we humans have minds capable of understanding the cosmos indicates that an intelligent mind created the cosmos. Very good. Yeah, and you know, atheists are always trying to have debates where they'll label them things like science versus God or science versus Christianity. And that's not really where the trouble is. The argument is between science and atheism. Well, the argument is also between Christianity and and Darwinian evolution. Right. But they often equate Darwinian evolution with science. Therefore, they say if Christianity and Darwinian evolution are not compatible, then that means Christianity and science are not compatible either. But that's not the same thing. That's right. And they they fail to recognize the problem that atheists have with evolution. Because if evolution is the source of your brain, then there's no reason you should trust your brain. Therefore, including any of the reasons you have for being an atheist. Sure, it's just a bunch of chemical and electrical reactions. So how do we know that anything that's going on up there really mirrors the truth of the universe? We don't. You don't have any good reason. That's right. You don't have any good reason. And we'll bring that up in the uh, discussion of the debate, too. Before we go to the debate, your co-host brought up a really interesting idea. And uh, I feel like it cures one of the issues with science, and that is if you are to base science in a purely empirical fashion, then uh, you basically to say, I can only trust my five senses, then how do you prove that the statement of uh, the only thing you can trust is things you can trust with your five senses? How do you prove that with your five senses? 
Well, instead of basing it in uh, that kind of circular logic, if you base it in some kind of rational being or some kind of rationale outside of that same logic, then it actually cures that issue. So actually, uh, some could argue that Christianity actually gives more validity to science. Well, it, it does. Yeah. yeah, it does. And that's um, that's why no other culture developed science but the mm. Christian culture. So they, they had technology. They had some areas where they had figured some things out. But there was no broad-based systematic approach to developing knowledge that like what came out of uh, Christianity. So many cultures thought, you know, that the... Uh, world was cyclical, and you know, you, whatever started would just come back around, and so there was essentially no hope to anything. There was no reason to try to advance because it was just going to come back around again. So, but anyway, that's uh, that's we we did a show on that in the past. So, well, Kirk, you didn't get a chance to listen to this debate. Uh, it was on Friday. We hosted it at Rosio Christi in Stockton College. And Jinsu was there, so Jinsu, you want to give us your initial impressions of William Lane Craig versus Alex Rosenberg, and the topic was, is belief in God reasonable? My initial impressions on the debate. Yeah. Well, um, my initial impression was, uh, when I first wrote notes for the debate, all I did was write basically mistakes that both sides were doing. And it was really funny because... And just in terms of uh, just debate style, I have to say that William Lane Craig is an expert at debating. And uh, Alex Rosenberg, regardless of how intellectual or, or smart he may be, just failed to meet, meet the debate etiquette. And I think it really harmed his debate all in, in its entirety. So right. that was my, those were just my initial reactions. Mm-hmm. And what about the quality of the arguments, though? Ignoring the format and the fact that Bill's been doing this for a really long time. That's true. That's true. So, uh, unfortunately, because uh, Alex Rosenberg did have that bad etiquette, had a hard time hitting the actual rebuttals against Craig's arguments. Um, it became very weak. His arguments became very weak because of that. He he had no, um, I guess, basis in a lot of his arguments only because he was attacking the wrong issues entirely. Right. And so he, he seemed to be yes. Yeah. He, so, he even redefined the whole. He even de- redefined the debate. Uh, William and Craig, when he when he was arguing whether faith in God is reasonable, he meant faith as in um, a a belief that you're going to take as true based on evidence. And Alex Rosenberg redefined the word faith to mean a unjust an unjustified belief that you're going to take from face value. And so Alex Rosenberg redefined the whole argument and tried to. I guess, in a way, say that he was arguing something that was arbitrary. But and, <laughs> but that's true. That's true. But he didn't even, if he had kept with that, he might have had some kind of an argument by saying that faith is unreasonable because this is what faith is. But he didn't even stick with that. No, he didn't. So, you know. Probably because he realized that he didn't want to go into semantics. But still, but, he might have had a chance if he did that. Right, because the, ar- the word faith isn't in the debate. It was, is belief in God unreasonable? I think that was the specific question. So, he took belief to mean faith, or he. I think he said he wanted it to be named, he wanted the debate to be is faith unreasonable? But of course, then you're just, you know, front-loading the argument. It's like saying, is, is being unreasonable unreasonable? 
Well, gee, that's an easy debate to win. I could debate that, <laughs> right? So let's get into the details, but let's remind people that they're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. I'm Jinsu Kim. Well, I have a quick question. Um, this this guy that was debating Craig, is he an atheist himself? Yeah, we were just going to get into that. Uh, let's get into who the details are. So Alex Rosenberg is a professor at Duke University. He is the author, let's see if I have the name of the book here. It's The Atheist Guide to Reality. Now, I don't see the name, but I'm pretty sure that was it. The Atheist Guide to Reality. He is an award-winning philosopher. He holds many seats and teaches at many universities, including Oxford. So this was no slouchy, you know, this was not just grab your local junior college uh, professor of philosophy. This is a major player in the field of atheism and has written on the topic, teaches on the topic, published on the topic, you know, travels all over the world teaching on this subject. So this was no slouch. He was a big name, and it was great that Bill was able to debate him. We just want to note that we uh, a lot of our summaries come uh, a lot of our sources and summaries come from uh, online sources. One, uh, our main summary is coming from Winter Nights, and he uh, this this summary that we edited we have the edited version comes from winternight.wordpress.com. It's wintery nights. Wintery nights. Yeah, I think that's a play. I don't know. I don't think I've met whoever does wintry night, but I think that's a play on the pun about the knight who goes out on a. On a cold night, I wouldn't send a dog out on a night like this. I'm pretty sure that's where he gets it from. Now, I have here that the guy's name is Wintery Night, but the website itself is Winter Night, so maybe that has to be double-checked. Yeah, no, it's Wintery Night. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a great website. I recommend it. Uh, He's got a lot of good things, and he also does some Christian worldview things, so he actually is a good complement to the radio show. Because he not only talks about apologetics, but he also and evidences that Christianity is true. But he t- also talks about some of the ramifications and benefits of Christianity versus some of the other worldviews like humanism or Islam and things like that. Now, are the, the joke that you're referring to, actually, I believe that was presented on the old Honeymooners show once, which was... Um, old joke. Yeah, I was talking, you know, I wouldn't send a dog out on a night like this. Well, then they twist it around, and the joke says, you know, it's talking about a knight that loses his horse and goes out on a dog, and they say, you know, I wouldn't send a knight out on a dog like this. (laughs) And that's my only guess as to where he gets the name Wintry Knight. Okay. So. Just want to clarify that. (laughs) Us old people know those old jokes. (laughs) Let's get into the actual arguments, because... Bill Craig was in the affirmative. He went first. So he gave eight arguments for the rationality of belief in God, eight arguments that God exists, and therefore, since you have evidence for your belief, then it is rational to believe. And I guess we'll, what we'll do is we'll summarize them, and then we'll, we'll go through the details of them, and then talk a little bit about how Rosenberg tried to answer them. So let's begin. Jinsu, you want to go through what the eight arguments Kirk, you by the way, did you were you able to get those notes? No, I didn't have time to get them before I ran over here today. Alright, well then you'll have to be the major question asking person. Oh I can do that good. Alright. Um 
I'm just going to go over the argument, argument titles and basically a very brief explanation. I'm not going to go into the premises yet. Uh, contin- the con- argument from contingency is that uh, God, a transient personal being, is the best explanation of why a contingent universe exists. The cosmological argument is, basically states that God is the cause of the beginning of the universe. And uh, it's basically attested by physics and cosmolo- cosmology. Um, his third argument actually was a new one I didn't hear before. Uh, the applicability uh, or applicability of mathematics to nature. And uh, basically that's that God is the best explanation for the applicability of mathematics to nature. Uh, the fine-tuning argument was next. It's that the God is the best explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe to permit life. Intentionality of conscious states. Now, I think you know that that was uh, one that was probably in reference to his book. Right. Okay, okay. I think he deliberately picked that because of something that Rosenberg talks about in his book, which we'll get to when we jump into the analysis. So the intentionality of conscious states is that God is the best explanation of the intentionality of our mental states. All right. The moral argument, God is the best explanation for objective morals uh, in that their values and duties and such. The resurrection of Jesus, that God is the best explanation for the core of historical facts accepted by most ancient historians across the ideological spectrum. And the last one, which is one of my favorites, is religious experience. God is the best explanation for immediate experience and knowledge of his existence. All right. So those those were the... Uh, first, I guess, what did they get, 20 minutes? I think they each had a 20-minute opening, and then they got 12 minutes, and then 8 minutes, and then 5 minutes, something like that. So that the whole thing took up a total of 90 minutes of debate time. So that was that was very good. Then Rosenberg uh, came back with uh, his presentation, and he started out with some real um, obvious ad hominems, real attacks against the opponent. That's so for people that aren't familiar with it, that's a fallacious way. It's an irrational way of arguing, saying that your opponent is stupid or uneducated or you know something like that. And that's uh, the the way of argument. It's so, basically shooting the messenger, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can, can I make a note about ad hominem? Yeah. The, the, uh, I mean, there actually is a use for it, believe it or not, uh, and that is if you're attacking the correlation between an action and a response. However, if you're making a logical argument and you use an ad hominem fallacy, the the problem with that is is that the actual argument itself is left unconstituted, which allows it to cause major problems later on. So it's it's just not a good thing to use in any debate or argument or paper or anything. Right. So. If you hear an ad hominem argument, you should not listen to it. Yes. It's, it, it's, that, uh, that is attacking the person instead of the... Right. So he said, he said things like, uh, Dr. Craig doesn't listen. Dr. Craig is not interested in getting at the truth. Uh, Dr. Craig is just interested in scoring debate points, things like that. So, uh, you know, we're going like, oh, okay, well, that's a great way to start off your, your arguments. So then, let's see, what did he talk about? He talked about, oh, this was a good one. He said that 95% of the members of the NAS are atheists, so National Academy of Sciences. 95% of them are atheists. So there you go. That's how, <laughs> that's how you know that atheism is, is rational and belief in God is irrational. Well, then you could have said if you lived in Germany during World War II, since most people are Nazis, then Nazism must be right. 
Yeah, that's true. yeah, exactly. It was an appeal to uh, numbers, you know, to authority. You know, eighty million flies can't be wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, not a, not a very strong argument either. But then he he did he did this argument about effects don't require causes. So we talked about that on past shows, and typically they'll mention if they say things can happen by themselves, they don't need to be caused. Well, that's not the argument that Bill was making. Bill was saying that the universe had a beginning and therefore needed a cause, but they basically say that since things like radioactive molecules can give off elemental particles spontaneously, that is, it doesn't appear to have a cause that we can identify, therefore effects don't need causes. Or they'll a lot of times they'll also, he didn't mention this, but a lot of times they'll mention virtual particles can pop in and out of existence in the quantum vacuum. But of course, and that actually isn't an example of something without a cause because those virtual particles are forming due to the harmonics of the energy waves that are passing through the vacuum. So if the harmonics get just right, the energy will transpose itself into matter. But the more massive the matter is, the more instantaneously it disappears. Um, the For any philosophy students out there listening, the uh, argument he was trying to say is that uh, the particle, the random particle uranium thing is that uh, because of this that the principle of sufficient reason is false. But the problem, but the thing is, uh, um, William, the actual argument was about necessary reason, so right. I don't know. Uh, that's just for you philosophy majors out there if you want to look into that. Well, I thought it was an accepted law of science that every cause has to ha- uh, every effect has to has a, have a cause. Is that right or not? Typically, Ben, that's the uh, law of causality. That has what has guided science forever since Christianity developed the scientific method. Yeah, that's the basis of science. Right. Actually. So, so wasn't so, yeah, that, so this, wasn't Rosenberg really denying science then by saying that? Essentially, he is, in my opinion. He is at least he's undermining the scientific effort because if you're willing to say that you can have effects without causes, then why can't any effect have no cause? Especially something like I mean, he's saying the entire scope of events. You've got an event so small that you know it's a radioactive decay particle, and then you have something so massive as the entire universe can come into existence without a cause. Well, that means everything in between can come into existence why aren't unicorns popping into existence right now with no cause i mean you know it's just as makes just as much sense that sounds pretty goofy to me yeah yeah it is then he talked about he argued against the fine-tuning argument saying that well you could have silicone-based life and you know things like that but later you know bill just came back and and said you know we're talking about if some of this fine-tuning you don't get even stars or planets you know, some of the, some of the fine tuning constants you don't even get matter. So, and then he argued about the Euthyphro dilemma that you know, and we've talked about this on past shows. Oh, oh sure, we talk about oh. everything. <laughs> it's one of my favorite dilemmas. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's funny is that he talked about it as if it hadn't been solved, and he talked about it. This was very bizarre. He talked about it as if Bill didn't know what it was. <laughs> That's it was right. the funniest thing, <laughs> except that Bill teaches on this all the time and uses his, uses it in his debates all the time and gives the solution to the dilemma. And this guy, 
says that Bill doesn't know the dilemma. He gave the dilemma and then said there was no solution to it. You know, you just had to pick one of the horns of the dilemma. And Craig and, and Alex Rosenberg did uh, say imply that he listened to all of his previous debates because he says, oh, you've done, done these before. You that's right. That's right. So somehow he missed that. I don't know. Now, then there was another part where Bill went, then Rosenberg went, and then Bill got to come back. And Bill did this terrific argument that I had not heard before, but it was based off of Rosenberg's book. So in Rosenberg's book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, he gives a description of what reality is like. And, you know, it's full of things like there are no moral absolutes, there is no such thing as truth, there is no such thing as free will. You know, it's the same kind of thing that other atheists have published before, Richard Dawkins and others. But so what Bill did was turned it around on its head and showed how these arguments actually prove the existence of God. So it was really good. So there were eight of them. And so I'll just pick one of them. Let's see. So Rosenberg said that there's no meaning in language. Okay. There's no actual meaning in language, which was really funny because since the guy wrote a book about it. So apparently he, he even wrote himself that the, the sentence he was writing had no meaning. He wrote that in his book. Yes, it's hilarious. Yeah, and why are we even here today then? Exactly. Why are we talking about this? <laughs> and, and why his, did uh, he write a book? And then his uh, argument that was that, oh, you have to read my book to find out what I meant by that. Right. <laughs> the question and answer, somebody came up and, and asked a question, why should I believe anything you say then? And the guy says, and he got really mad. It was funny. <laughs> He got angry saying, I know you're implying that I'm contradicting myself, but let me read from my book. And then he opens up the book to the page where he talks about how what he's saying isn't really a contradiction. And he reads it, but it, was, it didn't explain anything. It didn't explain why what he was saying wasn't a contradiction. It just said, it's not. So, well, how do you know that that sentence has any meaning then, you know? So well, it, was really, this, it was really funny. He, he just was unprepared. How does so, this guy get to be such a big honcho in the philosophical area then with these kind of arguments? Because he's a great atheist. Well, there's got to be something more to him than this. <laughs> so here's what he did. He said, he says, if God does not exist, meaning in language does not exist, right? Which came from the guy's book. So if God does not exist, then meaning in language does not exist. But... Meaning in language, uh, language does have meaning. Therefore, God does exist. And he went through all these eight items. So we have the argument from intentionality. So that is that uh, mental states imply that there is a duality. That is that there are minds because minds can be about things. And physical things can't be about things. So, for instance, if I'm thinking about an airplane, right? Another physical object can't be about a different physical object. There's just no aboutness unless there's an intelligence, unless there's a mind there. So Rosenberg was saying there's no such thing as intentionality, but that obviously proves God exists because obviously there is such thing as intentionality. If I paint a painting of Paris, that is that painting is about Paris. So, but it just took intelligence to create it. Same thing with codes and language. This goes on to his point number two: no meaning in language, right? 
that there is meaning in language, therefore God does exist. But according to atheism, there is truth does not exist. But truth does exist, therefore God exists. According to atheists, there is no moral truth. So there's no moral praise or blame. No one is morally praiseworthy or blameworthy. But that's not true. Morals do exist. Therefore, God exists. He also said, according to atheism, there's no such thing as free will. But there is such thing as free will in reality in this world. Therefore, God does exist. Number six, according to atheism, there is no purpose in life. But according to everything we know about life, life does have purpose and meaning. Therefore, God exists. Number seven, there is no concept of the enduring self. You don't endure one second to the next because you're just a continuous stream of particles. There's no actual you there to be continuous. But we know that that's not true. You are the same person now that you were when you began to listen to this podcast or radio show. Therefore, God exists. And the last one is the experience of first-person subjectivity, the I, right? In atheism, there is no I. You're just the random accident of molecules in motion. But there is, you do exist, there is an I, therefore God exists. So that was uh, that was the debate. It was really great. Kudos to our friend Bill Craig, and um, we should try to get him on the show. <laughs> well, oh, that would be great. <laughs> it would be great, wouldn't it? You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. As you can. Please join us again next week for more evidence that Christianity is true. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,